Welcome to Is That Embarrassing? The unfiltered and sometimes hilarious public airing of private thoughts and secrets. In each episode, I share secrets, listen to the secrets of my guests, all while debunking the stigma, self-consciousness, awkwardness, and feelings of embarrassment that sometimes surround these topics. I am your host, Stephanie Andrew. Um, Welcome, guys. I hope that wherever you're listening from, you're having an awesome week so far. And um, I just want to jump into the intro for this week's episode. So for those of you who are tuning in, you know, um, and have listened to past episodes, something that I wanted to use this podcast for um, the past month or so especially is to um, create a space for black voices and just to continually support the Black Lives Matter movement. And so one way that I decided to do that was to highlight, um, black owned businesses, black artists, and to do an ad for them, um, or to just, you know, share what they're working on and how it's inspired me or, whatever, what have you. And so last week was kind of chaotic in the editing process. I just genuinely forgot to do this. And this week, that is why it's the first thing on my list (laughs) because it's so important. And so I was on Instagram one day. I stumbled upon a musician by the name of Destiny Stone. As she puts it, um, she is a Mississippi-raised, Carolina-made musician, and she's incredibly talented. She is the founder of The Music House. And so The Music House is a foundation that offers uh, private lessons, they host local events, and they support young indie artists. So I stumbled upon Destiny's page on Instagram, and I you know, was obsessed with her music, especially as someone who grew up as a musician. And then I kind of saw the music house tagged in her bio and I started looking into it. And I just love what her vision is. Um, And being a black woman who is really passionate about music and using it to influence the lives, lives of children, I just felt really compelled to kind of share her story Um, and her vision with you guys. And so um, upon, you know, looking more into the Music House, checking out the Instagram page, I saw that they had a GoFundMe posted. So in the GoFundMe, Destiny writes, the Music House is where music lives. In July of 2019, Daniel King and I created the Music House to serve as a resource for music education and performance opportunities for local artists in Salisbury, North Carolina. Since our incorporation last year, we have had three piano students, one songwriting student, and hosted two shows. Unfortunately, we've had to handle operations from a small one-bedroom apartment, but we were recently given a house to to renovate with the help of Daniel's dad. With your donation, we can complete the renovations and begin having students again. The renovations will include a small performance space, piano lessons, uh, piano lesson studio, and workspace. Our goal is to raise the funds in 30 days, so every penny counts. Whether you give $5, $50, or $500, every cent you give will go towards turning an old house into the future home of the music house. And so, and there are some photos attached. The house is awesome. I can just see that it, it, it'll definitely be a place where, like, creativity is fostered. Um 
And so I just wanted to kind of share this vision and encourage my listeners to check out Destiny's page, check out the Music House's page, and consider donating any amount to this this cause. Um, music has impacted my entire life from, you know, enjoying and consuming music to being a musician. And I think it's such a, a critical experience for children um, and adults and anyone to um, connect with music and to learn how to create music if that's something that they're interested in or passionate about. And Destiny, I, I've spoken to her a handful of times. She's the sweetest, most genuine, down-to-earth person. And you can tell that um, she just believes in this vision for the music house so strongly, and so do I. And so if you want to support Destiny in creating this space, um, this safe space for people to grow and learn and become absorbed in music and creativity, then I encourage you to follow her at Instagram. On Instagram, her handle is Destiny Stone Music. And um, you can follow the music house at the music underscore house. Um, the, the GoFundMe page is in the bio of the music house's Instagram. Um, and so, yeah, I definitely, I just wanted to highlight that and encourage you guys to check it out and consider donating any amount. So jumping into this week's episode, I, um, it's an interesting topic and it's something that definitely is discussed more and more, I feel like as time progresses, but I do, I kind of envision that some people may stop the episode and not listen this week because it's maybe not relevant to you. Um, and I want to really encourage everyone to listen. <laughs> and it has nothing to do with numbers. It has nothing to do with, you know, it, this being this podcast being my baby. But it has everything to do with the fact that after recording and editing and listening back to this episode, I think that there's so much to learn. And so this week's episode, we discuss um, pregnancy loss and infertility. I'm joined by therapist Jen Kimmelman. She is incredible. She is insightful. She is lovely. She was welcoming. And really, she made the episode, I can't stress enough what a complete honor it was to have her as a guest this week. And I look forward to having her as a guest on future episodes. So in this episode, we talk about miscarriage. What is a miscarriage? What are some of the psychological impacts of a miscarriage? Um, and we just have a really open conversation about it. We also discuss how men and women may process pregnancy loss differently. We talk about grief in general and um, and how to respond to people's grief and how to show up and be there for them. And so while the, the episode is really about pregnancy loss, I think a lot of what we discuss can be applied to loss in general. And again, it, it just was a really insightful experience to have Jen um, give her professional opinion regarding this matter. This episode is incredibly personal to me. I knew, I knew when creating the podcast that this would be an episode. I just didn't know when. Um, and I think now is the perfect time and I get into that and why a little bit more throughout the episode. Um, 
But yeah, so I know I say it every week, but thank you for joining. Thank you for listening. If you are not already, um, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Rate and review the podcast if you feel inclined. And uh, let's see what else. Oh, if you want to submit a secret embarrassing moment, just talk to someone. You can email me at, I'm sorry, not at, I'm losing my mind. You can email me, is that embarrassing at gmail.com. And so yeah, without further ado, I'm so excited to bring Jen on. I'm excited to dive into this and I'm excited that you're here for it. Um, okay, so this week I am joined by Jen Kimmelman. Do you want to tell everyone a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I am a, therap- a somatic therapist living in New York City in the time of the COVID pandemic. <laughs> oh gosh, what a time. <laughs> what a time. Um, I've been a therapist for a little over a decade now. Um, I went to a school in California called the California Institute for Integral Studies and studied somatic psychotherapy, which is basically a holistic approach to therapy where it incorporates the body, soma meaning body. And the majority of the work I've been doing is working with young women, women, uh, professional women, couples, families, and helping them navigate some pretty tricky waters. So it's been a busy time. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like it, especially... Uh, we were talking a little bit before the episode, but in response to COVID, I'm sure that you are experiencing a lot more work because of the mental tool that that's had on people. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And marriages and families. Yeah, people are stuck together a lot more than they're used to. I, My boss and I had that conversation the other day because he's usually, he's the co-founder of our company. So he's usually working a ton and then they have three kids. And in the summer, the kids go away for like four or five weeks to summer camp. Mm-hmm. And this is the first summer and who knows how long that they're all like cooped up together in New York. And I asked them, I'm like, how's your wife? <laughs> how is she doing? Because... I'm sure it's like an adjustment for everyone, but more so her because she's used to just like everyone kind of being gone in the summer and it's very opposite this year. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. A lot of the arguments between couples at this point that I've noticed is, you know, they don't have their regular schedules, like their regular time with friends, their regular exercise routines, their acupuncture, their massages, their mani-pedis, their, you know, getting the house cleaned. All of these things have been taken away. And it's just been, um, a lot of new discussions have come up that weren't there before. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've felt as a single person, I have just like, I'm a, I'm a creature of habit. So just losing every aspect of my routine, it, there have been times where I'm just sitting there doing a lot of self-reflecting that I probably wouldn't be doing if I was caught in like the hustle and bustle of life. So I can imagine, I can definitely imagine being with another person. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, well, the main goal of the podcast is to discuss and destigmatize subjects that people um, may feel ashamed or embarrassed about. Uh, and today we are going to be talking about a 
subject that's personal to me that I haven't really spoke out a lot about, which is having a miscarriage. And um, rather than just talk about the subject on my own, I thought that it would be a fun twist to have you as a guest so that you can share your personal and um, professional experience in regards to uh, miscarriages and infertility. Yeah, I'm not a medical professional, but I have, but I'm a healthcare professional in regards to emotional well-being and the psychological health of a human. Yeah. So yeah. the, the medical piece is not my scope of practice, but the experience of it is. So a year ago, almost to the day I actually experienced um, pregnancy loss around eight weeks. And I always, I now like even in the episode, you'll kind of hear me say like miscarriage. You'll, I'll use that term now. But in the beginning, for me, it was so personal to like say pregnancy loss because something about the term miscarriage made me feel like my body like did something wrong. Like there was just, I just had this uneasy feeling about that term. And so, um, so yeah, I had uh, a pregnancy loss around eight weeks. And when I started this podcast, I knew that it would be something that I wanted to discuss because that's the whole point about the podcast. Like if I'm not genuine and authentic about experiences I have, then there's no point. Um, But I just didn't know when the timing would be. And then this year was like my first mother's day that passed. And then like my due date passed. And then um, the day I found out I was pregnant and then the day I found out I miscarried. And so it was just like all, like, it was like all these anniversaries kind of at once and being in quarantine and having the time to like do a lot of self-reflection. I just felt like this is the time, like I want to kind of speak out about this chapter of my life in a way and um hopefully maybe like help some other women who have had the same experience and the process and then just not be as defined by it like it's always going to be something I went through but I I feel like by not talking about it like it's always there you know Mm -hmm. so I know that you work with a lot of women and a lot of couples um I would love to know, have you, what has your experience been as far as like working with women who have struggled with miscarriages, infertility, things of that nature? Yeah, there was a, a, about a five year period, a few, few years back that it felt like that was 80 to 90% of my clientele. It felt, it, it just felt inundated and nobody was really talking about it. So I started to really enjoy the process of helping them navigate, just developing a language to talk about their feelings with their partners, as well as with their friends, their family members, how to kind of conceptualize it in their heads of what's happening. The majority of the women that I worked with or the couples that I worked with, it was incredibly difficult to just get a language to describe the feelings of what it's like to not be able to, the infertility that they were experiencing and the miscarriages that they went through, it was hard to put a language to what they were feeling in their bodies. And then to be able to to express that to their partners was incredibly difficult. So a lot of the work was just developing a language to describe the complex feelings that went along with infertility. Yeah. that's where it felt like we could get grounding where where couples could stay on common ground and where women could actually start the grieving process. Cause that's what it, that's what it kind of comes down to from my experiences. Um, whether it's a miscarriage or the inability to get pregnant, it's this 
loss or betrayal of your body. And it's a, an incredible amount of grief. Yeah, it's absolutely. Incredible. And mm -hmm. it's, it's really, um, I think it's so much more common than people may think. In the past two months, I've actually talked to three girls that I went to high school with who have like posted about theirs. And I've been like, hey, um, I haven't really told anybody, but I went through this too. And like, I don't know how I can be of support, but like, I, I have ideas of some things you may be feeling right now. And, um, and just like reaching out and trying to at least offer them some sense of like community or a person who understands because I I had moved to New York shortly before I got pregnant and I didn't know anybody there. I knew maybe three people. And so I wasn't, I didn't have my normal support system that I was used to. And then even when I like looked at my friends who were back home, um, a lot, like a handful of them had just recently gotten pregnant. And so they understood the pregnancy side of things, but they didn't understand or relate to really the loss. Then my other half of friends just like had no interest in having kids or boyfriends yet. And so I just, I felt like I just didn't have like a, a support system and I didn't know how to communicate to people without them looking at me with this, like, I'm so sorry face, but like knowing that they didn't actually understand like what it was like. Did you, a lot of women I spoke to talked about feeling as if they had failed, that, that they, that, they, that they were a failure, that their body had failed them, that, that they couldn't do something as yeah. simple as getting pregnant yeah. that has been done for millennial and, and thousands and thousands of years that they had failed at this one thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, so after I had my miscarriage, one of the first things I did was I'm a researcher, no matter what it is. Like when, before I bought my dog, I read like five books on dogs. The people <laughs> at the, the rescue were like, you're psychotic, just take her. Like you're overqualified. <laughs> so that's just who I am as a person. And so I started researching and it, you know, there are these statistics that like um, estimate that 10% of known pregnancies end in a miscarriage and one in four women, um, one in four pregnancies end in a miscarriage. And like seeing those numbers, even though um, it, it wasn't like personal because I wasn't having these conversations and hearing stories, but it like gave me comfort because I was like, okay, this is more common than I was ever really made aware of. I think that like a lot of celebrities have come out and they've started sharing their experiences that Michelle Obama, Carrie Underwood, Lily Allen, Beyonce, all of these celebrities have stepped up and started making room for the conversation. And so I feel like it has become a little less stigmatized. But for me personally, um, I didn't realize how much shame and like embarrassment and guilt was involved until I went to group therapy and mm -hmm. I would hear women who literally were like part of me wonders if I just wouldn't have gone to that bachelorette party before I knew I was pregnant or part of me wonders if I like didn't overexercise or you know whatever the situation may be maybe if I didn't let work stress me out so bad and I kind of fell into that that category because my my whole situation was very stressful and so then per I, I was the person who was thinking maybe if I like would have just done this on my own and not been stressful then my body wouldn't have failed me in this way and it was a real like mind fuck of changing that mentality of like my body didn't fail me this is just it's something that happens and there's nothing yeah, it's so common and there's nothing, I, I have polycystic ovarian syndrome. And so it's even more common with women who have PCOS. Um, but to accept that was difficult. 
I was constantly thinking in the back of my head, like I did something wrong. I could have done something better. Do you still have that repeating? That narrative? Um, not as much anymore. I don't think, uh, yeah, I think that I spent a lot of time following my miscarriage. I spent a lot of time alone. Like I kind of became introverted, uh, not in a bad way, but I just, I really like focused on myself a lot more than I probably ever have in my life because I knew that I needed it. And in doing so, I came to peace with a lot of things. And like, I, I found like forgiveness within myself. So it, it's one of those things I knew. And the more I talked to other women, the more I went to this, this support group, I knew that this was not something that was within my control and that there's, there, there's like no guilt to be associated with it. Mm. And where are you in, in your process, in your grief? Like, are you, how do you think about it often? Are you, are there still moments of deep sadness? Do you find yourself feeling that you're moving on and that you're, you're letting the, that you're letting it go? Where are you in it? It's interesting. So, so a little bit of the backstory, I had moved, um, I had moved to New York. I started a new job. I was living with roommates my whole life, basically. I uprooted everything that I had worked for, everything I knew to like pursue this dream of living in New York. Mm -hmm. And so I moved to New York. I had become with this, I had become friends with this guy over the course of a year before I moved to the city. And um, when I, when like, I guess throughout that whole relationship, I just like really fell for him, even from a distance, like just texting, phone calls, like I just really, really fell for so many parts of his personality and who he was. And when we got together, there was like this awesome physical chemistry as well. So it was like, man, like I crave this person and like crave being around him, even when he's so far away. And then when he's near, there's also this physical chemistry. And so it was just like consuming for me. Um... And so shortly after I moved to um, to New York, I found out that I was pregnant and that it was with him. One night I went to CVS. I have the picture on my phone still. I went to CVS with my roommate because I was like, oh, I'm kind of late. And jokingly, I grabbed like 50 boxes of pregnancy tests and she took a picture. And then it was like... Um, I was like, there's no way that I'm actually going to be pregnant. Let's make a haha out of this. And then it turned out that I, like, I was. I thought with having PCOS, I thought that maybe I was just, my body was spazzing out due to stress or what have you. So I found out the next day I went to work out with my trainer, who you know, <laughs> and um, I just had a mental breakdown on the treadmill and I just like, blubbered out that I was pregnant and she's like okay it's gonna be okay and honestly I have to say that thankfully she was like someone who slowly was becoming a friend of mine because I probably would have ended up in a really like bad place mentally had I not had that one person to just lean on mm -hmm. um but she was a really great support system and so the next day she really pushed me because I didn't even know if I was going to tell the guy like I knew that I had to at some point but it was just like he and I hadn't really talked in a few days and I felt weird about it. So she pushed me and she was like, you have to tell him. And so I met up with him and I remember the amount of fear because it was, I think that my experience is different than a lot of women's too, in the sense that I wasn't really 
I hadn't planned for this pregnancy, right? Whereas a lot of women who like, not all, but a lot of women who have miscarriages are married. And like, this is the next step that they're like looking to take in their life. And for me, it was like, I also, I had to process the emotion of finding out I was pregnant. I had been on birth control. So I was just like completely shocked. And, um, and then like navigating the situation of being alone in this major city with without my normal support system and then having to have this conversation with this guy knowing that like he was not going to be thrilled. So I remember meeting with him. I threw up twice. (laughs) (laughs) I threw up twice beforehand. I was so nervous and we went in a bar and he's like, can I get you a drink? And I was like, no. And then it was just like, I was literally shaking and he's like, do you want to leave? And I was like, yeah. So we left and we started walking and he's like, what's going on? And I, I physically could not speak. And he was getting so frustrated because he thought something like, like he didn't know what to expect and I couldn't speak. And so finally I just like, again, blurted it out. And so we like walked to the park. We had this, we had a lot of conversation, um, a lot of silence. It was just like a really intense experience. And ultimately like he didn't really know if he wanted to be a father. Um, he didn't know if like he he didn't want to be with me especially just because having his child's so like he didn't know that he wanted to be with me uh he was kind of dating other people casually at the time and i didn't know what i wanted to do and we both had these like resurfacing family experiences and like thoughts about our own family and so it was just like a very heavy situation neither of us were at the point of our life where we thought that we'd be having this conversation and um, through the whole thing, there were like a lot of highs and lows emotionally, physically, just like a lot of tests in our relationship and our friendship. And, um, I still, he wanted me to make a decision if I was going to go through with the pregnancy or I wasn't. And I just couldn't. And I was like, I have time. I have time. I can't decide. And he was getting like really resentful towards me for not deciding. And I was getting really resentful towards him for like pushing me. And, um, and then one day I started bleeding and it was like pretty, pretty heavy. And so I went to my OBGYN and they did blood work. They did a pelvic exam. They did blood work and my HCG levels were abnormal. And after some time and more blood tests and going back and forth to the OBGYN for a couple of days, um, they confirmed that I was experiencing a miscarriage. And basically they said I could take Cytotec and it would pretty much you know, move the process along a lot quicker, or I could just wait it out. And so I ended up taking it. And um, that's what I did. And like the following months, specifically, I, I was met with a lot of, again, like anger, sadness, I was, I would be lying if I didn't say that I was met with relief, because I was met with relief. Um, But I was ultimately all over the place. And um the I think the most difficult thing for me was that I didn't tell anyone like I didn't tell my family I didn't tell my like a lot of friends I I kept it really personal so over the past year I've worked on trying to heal um kind of alone like I haven't really done a ton of therapy or anything like that but ultimately for the most part I'm okay like I feel like I'm all right I think the one thing that I struggle with is that I have to like re- resurface everything 
because I didn't just tell people when it happened. Like, for example, having the conversation with like my family, which was so awkward, like that did not go how I anticipated. I just kind of told my mom in the car and then there was like some awkward silence and then we didn't talk about it again. But I think like the fact that I didn't tell people initially, now it feels kind of weird for me to go back and be like, yeah, this is a thing that like happened a year ago, but man, I'm ready to talk about it. And so, but do you know know what stopped you from, can you speak to what stopped you from saying it when it originally happened and from talking about it when it originally happened? Yeah. So there were a lot of things I think with my, and it it varies depending on the person. I think with my friends, there was a lot of shame because I fell for this guy who got me pregnant and then didn't want to be with me and didn't want to support me in that and didn't, you know, he was a person who told me like, if I went through with the pregnancy, we wouldn't be able to have a friendship. We would just have a business transaction. And like to, I felt foolish to have put so much trust in a person who like didn't meet the expectations that I had for them. And so, and I had, I had high expectations for him. And so I think that was part of it with my family. I was so afraid of how involved they would be. Like, especially my mom and I are very close. She's like one of my best friends. But I, I know that her nature is to like fix things and to take care of people. And I just needed to like grieve and like be alone. Um, I really just needed to like process things without someone trying to help me. And um, and I know she would have, she would have tried to help and I know it would have came from a loving place, but I just, it was so much and I couldn't have someone calling me every other day to check in on me because I just like needed some days where I like could try to not think about it. Sure. So now, nowadays, you know, obviously with all these anniversaries passing and everything, it like, I, I am sad. Um, but I think I have a lot of peace regarding the situation because I look at like how my life is now and I'm a firm believer that like things happen for a reason. And um, yeah, I just, I have peace about the situation for the most part. There's sadness still though. Like this guy had told me at one point in regards to like an abortion, he had told me like, this will just be something that like happens in your life. Like it's not, it's not going to be like this huge life event that defines you. It's going to be like a passing moment. You're going to do it. And that's just not like, I knew even in regards to an abortion, that's not who I am as a person. And so for having a miscarriage, like it wasn't just a Tuesday for me, regardless of how I felt about the pregnancy, because I had mixed feelings. Like it wasn't a Tuesday for me that just like happened and passed. It's like something that I think about very regularly. Like my friend has a baby and I think about the fact that like, oh, our kids would have been this close in age to each other. You know, you think about it. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I think that's uh, a misconception about miscarriage is that it ha- it's an event that goes away and it's over. And anybody that has grieved at one point in their life or another or, lo- or had any kind of loss in their life reali- understands that it's, it doesn't actually just go, it doesn't go away. There's nothing to let go. It is, it's a process. There are times where you don't think about it and it's okay and life moves on. And then there are times where it feels like you get hit by a truck and you have these realizations and the sadness comes back. And yeah. that's a really common experience. 
whether it's infertility or miscarriage or not being able to have kids, it's, it's ongoing. Yeah. Do you think that like the most, what would you say the most common um, emotion is with women who go through this? Would you think it's like guilt or grief or? I don't think there's just one. I think that it's, it is a medley of deep sadness and loss, um, shame and anger. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, and it, there are other ones that come in, right? There's sometimes there's relief. Sometimes there's acceptance. Sometimes there's um, rage. Sometimes there is, you know, there's, a, there could be a, just a variety and a spectrum of feelings, but those, those three seem to be the ones that constantly stick out in my head when I'm working with it or when it, you know, or from my own experience, you know, not being able to have children is an ongoing now it's an ongoing experience, right? There are times where I don't think about it, but then there are times where I'm still devastated if it's the, you know, that same day that I realized I was never going to be able to have children on my own. And so it's not, you know, it's, it's something that is part of who I am, not just a moment or an experience that happened to me. Yeah. And I think that's something that I had to really realize because I had this person's voice in my head, like, this is, it's just a thing. Like, it's just a thing that's going to happen. It's just a thing that's going to happen. And then, so I had felt for a while, like something was wrong with me that I was so hyper fixated on like how I felt about this. And again, like going back to my life in my, like that stage of my life, I I mean, even today, like, I don't feel like I'm in any position where I like want to have a child. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was interesting, because he and I had actually had a conversation months before. And I was like, yeah, I don't really like if I got pregnant, I don't really know that I would have a kid like that doesn't that's not my life right now. But then when it happens, there's this whole different you're like, okay, this is and he was really mad about that. Because he's like, we had this conversation. And I was like, okay, well, it's not a hypothetical anymore. And like, I have to really like process this. And so um, with, you know, I had this voice in the back of my head. And even not knowing that I like wanted whether or not I wanted to have a kid, I there was still so much sadness. And I felt like something about me is broken. Why can't I just move on and live my life? Like, why am I so fixated on this? And then um, I realized that once I acknowledged like, oh, this is like part of me. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, like it's something that happened to me and I can embrace it. Now mm-hmm. I know that some days I am freaking sad about it. And like those days I just kind of have to honor that. Like, what is it going to look like? And I've read, I'm like the queen of cheesy self-help books and all like podcasts. And so, you know, some days it looks like going to Home Depot and getting the stuff to like plant a succulent, you know, whatever it is that just like lets me honor those emotions. Um, but you know, I still have a lot of work to do with like being in tune with those emotions too. Absolutely. Well, and it's, I think that, I mean, our, in general, our society does not embrace negative emotional feeling states, sadness, anger, frustration, especially in women. And so I think we kind of, it's our responsibility to teach the people in our lives that it's okay. Right. So when I have moments of sadness or hours of sadness or days or whatever it is that I'm experiencing and I'm crying and I'm angry and I'm, I want to rage at the world of the things that I can't experience and my partner tries to fix it or tell me it's okay. I have to remind him, 
these emotions are okay. This is normal. This is what I'm feeling is appropriate and how I'm expressing it is appropriate. So we're going to let this storm pass because this is just as important as the fun, joyful feelings that I have and you, that you get to experience that there's just as much integrity and honor in my pain and in my sadness and in my anger. Yeah. You just want someone to see you and like recognize that and still just like let you live it out almost. Yeah. The more you push against it, the more you try to say it's okay, just it'll, it'll go away and you dismiss it or distract yourself. It just comes back with a vengeance. Those feelings just keep, they'll get you. Yeah, they, they will for sure. I, um, I felt one thing that I felt really strongly after the whole experience was isolation and part of it was self-inflicted. I um, really, I mean, I would hang out with my coworkers and stuff like that, but I didn't, I felt like, like I said earlier, I felt like no one understood. And even like the people who were like, oh my God, who the few people who did know who were like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Like I could see it in their face that they just had no idea like what to say or what I was feeling. And so at that point, like I wrote it off as like, this is not even worth my energy of trying to make this person understand what I'm feeling. Like I'm just going to go through this alone. But in that process, like I think that I became like numb to the feelings of others. Like, I don't think that obviously like my best friend not really knowing how to be supportive was vindictive on her end. And, but in my mind, I took taken so much personally because I was just like, you should be better. Like you should be calling me every night and like listening to me when I cry. And like for this guy, I um, recently went through some text messages with him and I read a text message where he was like, we're both, like we're both facing a lot of pain right now like you and I are both and I it was like awakening to me because that was the first time that I really saw that he might actually like be feeling something in regards to this matter because he just hadn't in his mind like I, I was so angry at him like one day I, when I had gone to the doctor and they had given me this medication, he was like, you know, I'm not going to be relieved until I know that like you're baby free and healthy. And I was so mad that he said that to me, but then like rereading the text messages from a less emotional place, I don't think that he like meant that to upset me. I think that like, I don't think his focus there was like baby free, get it out of you. Like, I think that he was just saying that like, he knew I was very, like I was sick my the whole, I was throwing up every day. Like I was miserable. I had migraines. And so I think that he was really just saying like, I'm not going to be relieved until like you're okay and healthy. And in my mind, I just like constantly, Constantly went to this place of like anger and resentment towards everyone because nobody like in my mind was going through it except for me. Mm-hmm. That's really it's it's a common experience. It's 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 an under it's it's an understandable response to an increasingly overwhelming situation. Because the thing to to remember also with your well in your particular experiences, you went from like shock to shock to shock. It was shock that you got pregnant in the first place, being on birth control pills shock and fear and terror of telling somebody that it didn't feel safe to even talk to him about. His response was difficult to deal with. Dealing with whether or not I'm going to keep this baby is, how do I even feel about the pregnancy? And then the miscarriage, it's just, do you see what I mean? It's just like hit after hit after hit after hit. So it's not really just the miscarriage in and of itself. It's like the whole experience of from start to where you're at today of an emotional whirlwind, right? 
Yeah. So it's, it's, so that's the thing that it's never just one thing. It's the experience and the context that we have these experiences in and who we have them with and how we navigate them. And I think like the other, like the people around you, their involvement in navigating the situation as well, for sure. We have to teach people and model to people how to support us. Which I'm bad at. (laughs) Like I'm the person who I will, I say this all the time. I just told my little cousin this the other day. I said, yeah, if my ex that I dated like six years ago really did me dirty, whatever. If he called me and was like, I need A, B, and C from you, I would be there (laughs) without even thinking twice. Like that's just my nature. Like my circle is small and tight and I'm very, I'm very conscious of who I let into it. But once you're in, you're like in and it doesn't, it takes a lot for me to like cut ties. Um, And so, but the issue is that I'm constantly pouring, 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 and like trying to figure out what people could need from me. Uh, And I never, I never make it a point that like, I need that reciprocated out of my relationships. Mm -hmm. Like to be able to tell mom, hey, I, I can't have you calling me each day, checking in to see how I'm doing. I need some space, right? If you were to tell her from the, from the start, right? How to put up those boundaries or how to let mom know, the best way to support you yeah. while you're going through this. That what, you know, mom, when you call all the time or you're worrying about me, it makes me then worry about you and yeah. I can't take care of your feelings right now. So what I need in order to start healing is maybe we talk once or twice a week. And sometimes I, I don't want to talk about it. I just, you know, we, I want to, you know, shoot the shit with you or whatever, or like talk about gossip. And that's the way I'll feel better this week without having to talk about the miscarriage. Right. So it's teaching people and explaining to them in any given experience, what how we need to be supported, what's going to best work for us at any given day. Yeah. I think too, another part, another like thing that I'm finding now, because since being home with COVID and everything, I, I've talked to my stepmom about it. I've talked to my mom. I've talked to my aunt. And sometimes I just, I get so anxious about the shock factor and like what, how this other person might react that it like scares me. Like it's almost scares me out of like tell, like sharing my experience with people because I'm so afraid of how someone might react. Mm-hmm. And I also, I'm really, I do a horrible job when people are sympathetic towards me. Like when someone's like, I'm so sorry you went through that. I just am like, oh, like, ah, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Stop looking at me. So anyways, what about coronavirus? Like, let's talk about anything else. You know, I just, uh, that's been like a, something that I've noticed in my conversations being back home. Like the people that I trust and I want to share it with, I still just don't even know how to start the conversation or how to handle the reactions. Well, it almost sounds like, you know, being cared for or seen and held in these really empathic ways by others is uncomfortable, like physiologically uncomfortable for you. Yes. But is that normal? Is that abnormal? It's not abnormal. No. I, I think there are certain people who experience that more intensely than others. But I think if you know how to, if you can grow the ability or at least grow the ability to tolerate it, you know, so it's this internal ability to grow the, to to tolerate the discomfort you feel while people are caring for you, you will be less likely to isolate and to go through things on your own because you'll be able to tolerate and take in the love and the support from others and it won't be as uncomfortable. 
that would be where the work is, right? Is how do I grow this ability to tolerate the discomfort I feel when people are really concerned for my well-being and showing me that they really care for me and they feel sorrow for me? Yeah, because I don't want to be emotionally constipated. Like, I've never been that person. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> like, I've never been that person. It's almost like your nervous system can't tolerate the discomfort you feel when it's coming at you. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. Which, which is it? You know, it explains a lot as to why you would not share it with others for for a while. That this this kind of really intense personal experience. Yeah, absolutely. And I think too, there were there were some people in my life that I didn't really trust enough that they wouldn't somehow make it about them. Mm-hmm. And and it was something that was so personal to me that I just felt like I had to like keep it that way. So there, you know, there are people in our lives that no matter how many healthy boundaries you put up around the kind of care that you need, they will always make it about them. Knowing who those people are and trying to navigate, hey, this is what I need. You know, I don't want it to be about how you feel. I need it to, I need you to be strong for me. I need this to be about my experience. And they'll be able to say, okay, cool, I get it. That might be rare. It's, it's not every day people can do that. There are some people that will just simply make it about them. No yeah. How do, you pr- how do you think that you protect yourself from those kinds of people though? When I, when I put up a boundary with someone and it's not met or it's, it's you know, it ke- I have to keep doing it. If I have to keep putting up a boundary, I usually, that's my key of like, okay, this isn't, I'm just not going to share certain things with this person. Yeah the effort it takes for me to put up a boundary to feel emotionally safe with them so that I can be vulnerable and have them support me is, is not, it's not beneficial to me in the end. It's too exhausting. So those people, I just don't share certain things with. There are other, there are other ways that we relate to each other. There are other experiences we have, but um, in order to keep that relationship healthy, I just, there are other people I go to with things that might be more sensitive people that can really hold. Some people just don't, it's, it's hard. You know, people are only capable of what they're capable of, right? They're, they can't do any more than they know. And it's just, I think identifying those people in your life is a really healthy way to go. It, it, it's a helpful way to go rather. Another thing that I was really taken back by after the, the whole experience was how out of touch I felt with my body. Not only, I mean, there was just like so much going on hormonal, chemically, physically. Um, but I just like, I felt so out of control of my body. And I think maybe it was because this, I had this experience that was out of my control, you know, but even for months afterwards, and I have, I've struggled my first episode on this podcast was talking about like I've struggled all throughout high school and college with eating disorders and still I'm like constantly working on like trying to adopt a intuitive eating mentality and just like really like being in tune with my body and what it needs and rejecting diet culture and all of that and after my miscarriage I became like so hyper fixated on my body and I think it was because it was like that's my area of control that I'm used to and so but it took like a really long time to like feel any amount of like comfort within my own body. In your own skin. Mm-hmm. Well, it's such an out of control experience between hormones, right? Between um, having another human being, like your, the, the guy, you know, that you were talking about involved in your life. I mean, it's just, there are, there are so many variables of things out of your control. 
that if there is a past of eating disorders or any kind of controlled eating or dieting, that is the body's kind of safe place or default. And considering the severe stress that this experience has over someone, it's understandable to go back to that for sure. Yeah. yeah. I think some of it tied into that, that mentality too of like, if I w- was just like healthier, I don't even, and like my doctor's constantly like, Stephanie, your everything's perfect. Your thyroid, your blood pressure, your everything's great. But I, it, I was still just like not convinced. I was like, if I was healthier, I should, maybe if I would have started running six months before this happened, like I told myself I would, you know? And so it was this like, all right, well, I'm going to regain of regain control through like you know over exercising or meal planning down to every calorie or whatever the situation looked like yeah mm-hmm. how so long did that last for can you speak to the length of time that you experienced that for probably from july until november mm-hmm. yeah it was a while it was and then in november you started to shift into a little bit more of that intuitive eating and trusting. Yeah, in November, I just got so, I mean, and not to say this hasn't happened in the past because I've constantly been really aware of like my relationship with food and my relationship with my body and I've wanted to improve it, but it's a journey. And so, um, but in November, something just like clicked for me where I was like, so freaking sick and tired of like being at war with my body. And I was so sick and tired of like, feeling guilty over food and like not wearing the shirt I wanted to because I was afraid someone might think that like I was too fat or whatever the situation was. And so I had like listened to a few podcasts on intuitive eating and I just started researching and like reading the book. I'm reading the fourth edition right now. But and I just I knew that it wasn't this time. It wasn't this time. Like it wasn't about, okay, well, what's the next, like, what's the next diet? Cause I've been doing diets since eighth grade. I started Weight Watchers when I was in eighth grade and I definitely didn't need to, but I did. And so this time it was just like, I am so tired and my body is so tired. And I've also been through this like traumatical physical and psychological thing. I'm like, I just want to take care of myself and I just want to be at peace. And I don't want to have guilt over food anymore or guilt over exercising. And I sure as hell don't want to keep forcing myself to do exercises that I dread because that's being counterproductive. And I just like had this like breakthrough of like, I can't freaking like, I just, this is not another thing that I can keep on my plate right now. Like I have to, I have to be proactive about healing this part of me. Mm-hmm. Good. Good. Yeah. So, and it's been, it's been real liberating. It's been awesome. <laughs> like this is, this is the first summer and God knows how many summers that I've like bought shorts and I've been like, screw it. I have a cellulite. So it is pretty much, you know, 80% of women to some extent, like I don't care. It's hot as hell. I'm going to wear the shorts and I'm just like going to honor my body. Cause it's done so much and been through so much. Yeah. 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 Um, so one thing that I'm curious about is so you said that you do couples therapy as well, correct? Mm-hmm. How do you feel? Because until recently, I honestly, until Father's Day, actually, I didn't really take into consideration how men really may process things different, like a miscarriage or infertility different than differently than women. Mm-hmm. And so in your experience, how, what do you think that looks like? What is that comparison like? So from my experience, 
usually with, so it's a little different depending on the sex of the couple. So if it's a same sex couple, if it's two men that had a surrogate or if it's two women and one of the women is pregnant, the other, you know, one's carrying and one isn't. Um, but I'll just speak to the heterosexual experience just to, for the course of time, um, for the sake of time. When it is a heterosexual couple, what I've noticed with men is all they wanted their, their the way that they feel value, that they can add value is to fix something, is to make it better, to just fix it. And so 99.9% .9 of the time, the way that they respond to the woman is by trying to fix it to make it all better. We can keep trying. Um, it's, you know, we can do this. Why don't we try that? Like, it's this kind of, let me fix it, let me fix it, let me fix it, which usually is not working at all. And it just drives the woman insane. One big thing is that if I can help women understand that his way of showing value or trying to help is to be a fixer, it's not to hurt you. It's that this is the first way his brain is going to go. This is his first line of thinking. It's just how he's wired. It's part of his evolution, right? It's part of being a man. The second piece is this kind of when that doesn't work, when they can't fix it, there's a panic and a worry and a fear that kicks in. So then the responses after that are kind of fear-based responses. This is now getting out of control. I can't control this. I can't fix this. And then they start to get angry. So then they start to get defensive. Get over it. It just happened. We can, we can move on. Why is it taking so long? Why is it taking so long to get over? That's one way. It's not because they're assholes. It's because they're, they're getting scared because she's not healing. And, it, and watching her in pain, watching the, the person that they love more than anything in life it, suffer in this way is almost unbearable to them. They can't tolerate it. So in order to soothe that discomfort they're feeling, they're just trying anything, anything, yeah. which is not great. Um, the other thing is that I noticed is that there's not a lot of space for their sadness. And that made me feel real, you know, there was a whole lot of empathy for them was that when I did make space for them, which is, a, is walking a tightrope because, of course, women want the space to be heard and understood by their partner and to have their feeling spaces, their feeling space. It, it took a lot of gentle nudging to say, we need to give him some space. Yeah. We need to hear his experience. And usually the man's face just dropped and the jaw dropped and was like, I don't know. And then that pisses the woman off. What do you mean you don't know? And so, and then it becomes a tit for tat. So it was like, all right, all right, everybody just calm down. <laughs> so creating a safe space, part of the work was helping, you know, the, the female, just helping the woman create space for her partner's experience, whatever that might look like without taking it personally, without getting angry at him. And that takes some time. And once that space is created for him, what I saw was complete and utter devastation. That the pain and the suffering and the sadness was just as deep as the woman's. Yeah, it's a different, it, it's not the body experience that the woman, you know, it's, he's not having the, the body experience, like the betrayal, the feeling of failure, but there, there was the, the devastation and the deep, deep sadness was heartbreaking. 
And once the partner was able to see that, or the woman was able to see that, the spouse, partner, uh, whatever, uh, that's when they were able to heal together versus separate. Yeah. And I think that's a, I think that that for couples who maybe don't go to therapy, I can't imagine being able to navigate that without that outside voice to kind of facilitate the conversation and prompt it. Uh, because yeah, I just can't, I just remember how honestly, in so many ways, like I said earlier, I was so self-centered and I was just going through so much of my own shit that it was so easy to miss things that were happening outside of that. And so to, to create that narrative where it's like, okay, let's, like you said, let's create some space for him to feel and express. And yeah, I think that that's such a critical part of the process for both the like husband and wife. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, again, I want to use the word partner interchangeably, not just heterosexual couples. I do think, you know, for female couples, it is a different experience. There is a little bit, there's a, they already have the vocabulary, the vocabulary and the languaging ready for them. So then they're, dif- they're really just navigating the difficulty of the grief and the sadness together, because I think women have the la- a little bit more language for it. It may not be a ton, but they, they have a little bit more language than, than I've seen from men. It's a lot more challenging with a heterosexual couple for sure. Do you um, feel like that language is in, in pertaining to grief and loss in general, not just in this kind of scenario? Absolutely. Yeah. I think that, I don't think we, I don't think in this country, at least we know how to talk about sadness and grief in a way that's safe without it feeling, because we just don't have the words for it. It's so hard to know that like, I feel gutted. I feel devastated. I feel heavy and and pained every day. Like there's not a, it's hard for people to speak. Like, I mean, I speak like that all the time because of my work, but um, I don't think, you know, it's, it's not invited or welcomed in this culture. So I think it's just hard in the beginning for people to start to put words to their physiological and emotional and psychological states. Yeah. I think that we, our society really here thrives on being on. Like we have to be, and I I skipped an episode two weeks ago. I had a loss in my family and I just, I've been trying to be just so much more self-aware in general. And I just was like, oh my gosh, I have to find a guest and I have to record and I have to edit. And I was just so emotionally drained that I was like, no, I don't have, I don't have the capacity to be on for anyone. And like, I just have to take a week off that, like off the podcast and that's fine. But I think that it's so like frowned upon, like you are expected. And, and then if you are sitting in your feelings for too long, you're just a buzzkill. And it's like, that's like exhausting. It's exhausting to feel like you have to be one thing when you feel the complete opposite. Well, and imagine, you know, being a man and watching your partner go through this devastating experience, you are, you yourself are going through it. It's been months. She keeps talking about it. And your trend and your authentic feeling state is I can't tolerate this anymore. I don't have any space to continue to hear this pain because I'm at the max. Imagine a man trying to actually verbalize that to his partner who's going through pain 
without her taking it personally. Yeah, someone's going to die. <laughs> someone's going to get cut. Yeah. And so he'll just stay silent and he'll just hold it in and he'll, that'll manifest in depression because that's manifest in depression. Men manifest depression differently than women. It'll manifest in negative behavioral states. Like it just starts manifesting because of the fear of speaking out for good reason. So it's incredibly complicated. There's so many complex feelings and, and variables to this kind of experience for women, for men, for singles, for couples, for heterosexuals, for gay and lesbian. Like it's, it's a minefield. Yeah. It is an absolute minefield. And I just, I would hope that anybody experiencing this at varying degrees feels like they can get the support that they need to help them navigate this because you can come out the other side in a way that is informed and healthy and healed and where you use it as an experience and a part of who you are versus this horrible event that happened to me that now is defined and put this heavy blanket on me. Yeah. How do I use this to help me? Absolutely. That's, that's a tricky thing. And I think too, the recovering process and like coming out of the experience of a miscarriage looks so different for so many people. Like I, I have a friend that I know who miscarried and was um, like her and her husband tried immediately again. Um, I have like the guy that I was seeing, he started dating very quickly after everything happened. And that was like kind of shocking and appalling to me because I was like, I can't be in the same room as another man right now. <laughs> like for a long time, I felt that way. And so I think something worth noting is also that people heal in different ways and they, the way that they may project that they're healing is, do you get what I'm saying? Like, it's just hard. Cause I looked at so many people and I was like, Hmm, interesting that they went about it this way. Like, why are you dating? Why aren't you sad for a month? Like, you know what I'm And, and it's like, Oh, not everybody. Everyone's just different. It, it just, it, any, every single person's family of origin and how they grew up. And there are so many different things that inform how we, our resiliency level, how we navigate conflict, how we navigate trauma, how we navigate painful experiences, all of that informs it. And so when somebody is grieving a certain way or it looks a certain way and it doesn't make sense to me or their partner or whoever, the idea is just to, to remember that they're not you. Yeah. And it's something that I have to keep reminding myself and my own partnership. What I have to remind couples and individuals is saying, they're not you. This is going to look different because they're not you. It doesn't mean they feel any less. It doesn't mean they're not experiencing similar feeling states. It means that they're navigating it differently. That's really insightful because it's also hard to accept because sometimes you're just like, God damn it. I just want him to, I want him to be as miserable and as I want his life to suck as much as mine sucks right now. And I want to see the suckiness of that asshole's life. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. I want him to be too sad to date someone. I want him to feel the pain. I want to know. I want to be able to see. Like you said, I want to see that he's feeling. I think that was one of the most difficult parts was that I never really had any sense of clarity with this partner or closure. I just, I really... All I really feel like I ever got out of any conversation was that he just did not want this. And... um and 
I, I really just struggled with that. I just struggled with it because I felt like he wasn't even trying to understand my side of things. And, but you, you make a great point. Everyone does deal with things differently. It's shitty though, to just have to stand by and be like, all right, I don't get it, but it is what it is. It's horrible. It's horrible. And that's where some of the anger comes from, right? That's where the anger is valid. It's like, if you don't feel heard, if you don't feel understood, if you don't feel met at where you're at and you see somebody, it's, it's infuriating. Rightly so. Yeah. We, after, um, so after the miscarriage happened, we didn't talk for like two weeks probably. And, you know, my, I will admit that my coping mechanisms shortly after weren't the best. I, um, I, I kept a lot to myself, but I was also going out after work a lot with coworkers. And so we had taken this, um, trip to the Hamptons for a work outing and I like drank a ton it's way too much probably. And I text him and I was like, you ruined everything. And he was just like, okay. He was very, very mature and responsible for the both of us. He was like, we've both had drinks tonight. I can already tell you have, we should wait and we should talk about this in the morning. And we did. And then that night when I got back to Brooklyn, like we got together and we had dinner and, but it was like, it was again that I had this expectation for two weeks afterwards, he did not text me. Like, he didn't check on me. He didn't ask how I was doing. And, like, this person that I just shared this huge thing with, you know, regardless of how invested and present he was, like, he just, like, disappeared. And I and it, it almost felt like, well, he's free. Like, you know, like, he just bailed. And um, his side of things was just that he didn't know what I needed. He didn't know if I, like, needed space or what. And, and so, again, like, the I feel like, the further we get, like the more time that goes on, the more understanding I am of where I think he may have been coming from and what he may have been experiencing. But it is the when you're in the heat of that moment and the heat of those emotions, it's so hard to think logically. Well, because your your brain actually sh- the, your prefrontal cortex is like kind of shutting down because you're 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 what you're, what's called a flooded state. You're just flooded with emotions, very very intense emotions, and we can't we're not analytical or or we can't really use this front part of our brain when we're in that, those states. It's just fight or flight. It's just survival at that point. Yeah. You're surviving. Is there a way to like decompress from that state? Is there a way to like be mindful of it and come down from it? When you're in it, you know, things like breath work, meditation, um, really having a therapist or somebody or a support group to be able to hold you in it to help kind of hold that mirror up to remind you that you're safe. Yeah. Your body is safe, that you're going to get through this, that, that it's just, I think when our nervous systems are really activated and when we're just flooded with these intense emotions, especially when there's a hormone, when there's a hormone situation involved, right? You're, when your hormones are dictating a good amount of the intensity of what you're feeling, it doesn't diminish the experience, but there is also, it turns up the volume on emotions yeah oh he thought I was crazy for sure like he thought I was like textbook definition of crazy because I just like especially the anger like and I'm typically not an angry person just like the way that I grew up and the way I learned to communicate I really try to I'm not always able to ask what I need of people, but I really try to like express how something makes me feel versus just bottling it up or lashing out. 
And I was like, whew, full. It was like PMS 24-7, baby. I was just like feisty and ready to go and nothing he said made me happy. And yeah, the hormones were a big part. So I think having somebody that you really trust and feel safe with to that, that you can be, so like, if I'm in that state, if I'm starting, if my hormones are going and I'm in that state where like I am flooded, there's sometimes there's like code words that people can use that I really trust to just remind me that like, this is not really, this is going to move through you. You're okay. Yeah. Or I talk to somebody that has known me for a really long time that can talk me down. That can, I think can be really helpful. Um, but it, it doesn't always work. And you just got to let the storm pass. Yeah. There, um, there were really just two more questions that I wanted to go over specifically regarding miscarriages. So we've discussed a little bit that like words, like people's word choices can really hurt during such a fragile time. And so what are ways that you would encourage people to support friends or family members that may be enduring pregnancy loss or infertility? And also on the other end of the spectrum, what are some things that you think that maybe people can refrain from doing and saying um, in these situations? Okay, so I'm going to do the last one first. Um, (laughs) What I think is harmful in these types of situations is when people uh and these family members and friends and partners they're it's all good intentions these are good people that love this person very much but i think um it's gonna be okay you can always try again right that things like um oh you were you were only pregnant for eight weeks it's you weren't that attached or where they try to make it better in that way. I, th- I, I think that's harmful. But in a way, those statements are really saying like, your pain is not valid. Yeah, it's, it, it's the, that's the message that it gives. Yeah, it's, yeah. Not their, it's not their intention. I think most people, to be honest with you, most people really have a hard time tolerating big emotions and difficult situations. They cannot tolerate. And so they're going to do whatever they can to make to make themselves feel better because it's uncomfortable. So saying things like that tends to help soften their experience, not realizing that it's death. And they think it's helpful. They think it's helpful for the other person. It never is ever in my experience ever. So don't try to make it better. Don't try to make light out of it. There's no silver lining here. Fuck the silver lining. Fuck the rainbow at this point. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's helpful. Um, the other thing that I don't think is helpful if, they, if people can refrain from saying, well, you know, did you drink too much? Did you, you know, did you overexercise? Where they try to figure out why it happened? No. No. We yeah, you're not a doctor. That. It's not your place to, to figure it out or fix it. Did you eat something you shouldn't have eaten? Or did you, you know, did you sleep the wrong way? It's like, no, no, we, we don't need to hear any of that. Shut that I, down. I feel like maybe sometimes that's people trying to understand it versus just like accepting it. Like they don't understand it. And so they're like, okay, well, I have to make sense of this in order to accept it. Which when you're coming to them for support, that's not, you're not looking for them to understand it. Again, it's, it becomes their experience, Mm -hmm. right? So they're trying to soothe their own pain. 
So then the first part of your question, which was what I just want to make sure I, I say, I Yeah, of course. Uh, the first part was what are ways that you may encourage people to support friends or family members that may be enduring pregnancy loss or infertility? I think the, the first thing and the simplest thing is to say, I'm here. What do you need? Should I, can I call you tomorrow or will that be too much? Is I think to ask, how can I help? Is there anything you need? What can I do? And to remind people that, that they're not alone, that they don't have to be alone in this pain and in this suffering, while it is part of their experience and their personal experience that at any given point, if you need to share this pain and you need me to hold this pain with you, I'm here anytime. Yeah, I think that is critical. Like I said, I had that one friend. So my friend Mara was that person for me who she like the day after I found out she was the one who like forced me to eat because she knew that I was stressed out and I wasn't going to eat and I wasn't going to drink water. And she was the person who would call me and be like, Hey, what do you need today? And I'd like, my roommates were up late partying. I just am exhausted. And she'd be like, okay, my bed is made. Frank is there waiting to nap with you. And she would just like, let me sleep, you know? Yeah. And there were times where I would want to be alone, but I wouldn't want to be alone. And we would just like lay in her bed and watch TV and not say a word to each other. And that was like, when I say that in so many ways, I really don't know how I would have come out of the situation without her being as understanding and available as she was. And it was always on my terms. There would be times where I would go four or five days and I wouldn't update her as to what was going on because I just wasn't in the headspace to. And she was accepting of that. She would check on me, make sure I was alive. But then like the rest was up to me, how much I like wanted to be present and available to talk or hang out or whatever. And so um, that was critical. That was, cr I, I seriously don't know how I would have come out of it or gone through it without that. Mm -hmm. And what she did, what she does so well, which makes her really awesome at her job and as being a friend is be, being able to meet people where they're at. Yeah. And that's it. If it's, if the, where you're at is that you can, you want to talk about it and you want to cry about it. Great. If where you're at is that you need some space. Great. If where you're at is you just need somebody to care for you and nurture you. Great. But it's, it's, a lot of people have a hard time doing that. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, it is. Everyone needs a friend like that. But like you said, it's so, it's not common. It's hard no, it's not. It's, it's one of those things where like, you know what you don't want and you know when it feels bad, when somebody's get when supporting you in a way that doesn't feel good or trying it, you, you know right away, like this doesn't feel good. It's very hard to be able to verbalize or describe what will work. But when it shows up, you know it in your whole body. You yeah, know, it just fit. It's just easy. Like, you're just like, oh, I can. It's like there was actually as soon as I told her, I remember distinctly a moment where I just like sighed this sigh of relief because of the way that she responded, the way like the way she handled everything. We were exercising. And so she was like, all right, you need to stop squatting immediately. We're going to have you start doing this instead. And she just started like, and I was so worked up and she was just so present and there. And she didn't try to, you know, throw her opinion in or ask questions. She just like, let me go off, you know? And so, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's for, for sure important. It's difficult to find, but I think that when you experience that in another person, you kind of start to desire to be like that for other people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like there, 
there are things in my life where I'm constantly like, I need to learn how to be an active listener better. And I, you know, start reading books or just paying really, really close attention to my conversations. And I think that there's a lot that we can learn from friends and people that are like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so much you're already learning from this experience, how to show up for yourself, how you can show up for other people, how you'll be able to show up for other people who are going through what you've experienced. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I feel like I, because of some of the the shame and guilt and just like uneasiness that surrounded my personal experience, I started feeling at times like I was doing a disservice to, to women because I would see someone that I know pretty well who would post about her experience and their loss and they would be publicly mourning and I would want to reach out, but then I would feel like, I would just feel like weird about it because I didn't mourn in the same way that they did. And it was something that like I kept a secret and I was like, what if she thinks because I kept it a secret that like she should be like ashamed of this. And there was just, I felt like there's this like disservice that I was doing to like women in my life by not being open about my experience. And I, I also felt like I was doing a disservice to myself by not just like acknowledging that this happened. Yeah. You know, remember that, we're only able to process things in our own time. Our timing might be different, right? Mm-hmm. So that while, yes, you, you took some time before you were open about your experience, but at this time, at that point in your life and where you were at, that's what you needed to feel good. That, that part of the isolation that you felt, it might've been you just pulling back to heal like a wounded Like when we're wounded, we have to retreat in order to heal Yeah, when we're harmed. And that might've been just the process that you need to go through. And that's okay. That's okay. It's perfectly acceptable. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to challenge that and to see if you can, you know, there might be a way to challenge that and you can grow into what it would be like to share with very specific people like Mara, right? That you feel really, really safe with. That's a safe place to grow versus trying to tell everybody or people where you have to worry about their feelings. That's okay. That's okay to wait until you're ready. Yeah, absolutely. I think that timing is really key and it's not, it's not a one size fits all. Everyone's timeline looks a little bit different. I love, I've, I constantly in regards to the miscarriage in regards to body image, everything I'm like, healing is not linear. Like, you know, and it just, it looks so, it fits every person so differently. Um, so the last thing I really wanted to see was if you have any things that you would recommend women to do in order to heal emotionally after having the experience of a miscarriage or infertility, is there anything that you think that women can really benefit from in these situations? Yeah. Um, the amount, the compassion that women have a hard time having self-compassion for them, for their bodies and for themselves. They usually go into shame or anger or betrayal or feel like a failure. Not like they go into this kind of harsh place from my experience. And the one thing that I'm constantly working with women on is how do you have compassion for your body? How do you have compassion for the experience that you just went through? How do you love your, like if, if, if a child, like a, your six-year-old child just went through this or if a child just got hurt, 
would you be telling them that they're you know not good enough and their their bodies suck and that they failed and that they should have exercised more or they should have like no you'd go over and give them a hug yeah and you'd soothe them right and just hold them and i feel like if we can learn how to do that with ourselves that's a really important first step it is so important to treat ourselves when we're wounded in this way and we're in pain in this way as if we're caring for a child. That's the first thing. Second thing is find a friend that you really feel safe with or a therapist or a support group where you can let your experience be heard, let your feelings be out there so that somebody can see you and hold you in it and walk through this with you when you're ready, right? When they are ready, when they feel ready to do it. But that is, that, that's everything. That's yeah. everything. Yeah, I agree. I agree completely. But it's been really insightful. And I love that we dove into so much more than just like having a miscarriage, but also how to understand ourselves and sit with ourselves and love ourselves more as women. Um, and so I, I appreciate, and as not only as men, as women, cause like you said, men go through this ex exact loss as well. And that's a narrative that I'm so glad that you've pushed because we push that. I push that on the podcast all the time. And this is such a, for me personally, like I just view, I viewed it as like such a woman's problem and you've really opened my eyes and enlightened me to like, Oh, does Stephanie be better? But that's what life is. Like we're constantly learning and learning to, you know, uh, broaden our view. And so I'm so glad that you pushed that narrative as well. Absolutely. There if, if we can create a safe space for men to express themselves however they need to express it, even though we may not like what it, they say or it makes sense or it doesn't feel right, that that is just as important. Yeah. And, just, and, and that's a space that I, I don't think many men have either. And that's, that's a shame because it really is a family. You know, I'm a family therapist by, by trade and pregnancy it's you know this is it's relational it's all about relationships whether it's a relationship you have with yourself the relationship you have with a child that was not being able to be you know brought into this world whether it's a relationship with your partner family members it's all relational at the end of the day right yeah absolutely. yeah no this is i think this is going to be really helpful for a lot of people you know yeah. you to your experience and so i really appreciate that yeah, thank you. And I, again, I appreciate you bringing some professional perspective to the episode, uh, probably way much better than me blabbering on. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's been so helpful. And it's been so good getting to talk with you. Um, do you is there anything I mean, sometimes people are like, Oh, I wrote a book or Oh, you can follow me here. Is there anything specific that you'd like to plug? No, you know, I think you can go to my website, which is jenniferkimmelmanlmft.com. And there are, um, there's ways to get in touch with me. If you need a therapist, I have referrals, I have um, uh, blogs and, and information if anybody needs to how to find help, how to find extra support. Um, so you can always just go to my website. There is a lot of support out there. This, this is getting a lot, this has a lot more attention than it did a decade ago. 
Mm -hmm. it's, it's talked about a lot more. So there are tons and tons of resources and support out there. We just got to look a little bit. And so if there's a, any way that I can help, just, you know, contact me. That's Absolutely. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. This yeah, was of course.